1: with my phone next to me which is never a good idea and i was not correcting my typos and i made lots and lots of mistakes and then i fell asleep
0: from the ted audio collective this is design matters with debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Susan Orlean talks about her career writing articles and books, and about a celebrated pandemic tweet storm.
1: Somebody said to me, were you performing? And I said, no, I could never have done a drunk tweet as well as I did it
0: drunk. It's just about impossible to predict what Susan Orlean is going to write about next. Maybe it's an article and then a book about an orchid thief, but then years later, she comes out with a book about a library fire. It almost doesn't make any sense until you start reading and see how the same intense, passionate attention is given to all the subjects in her body of work. She literally writes nonfiction that re-enchants the world. In addition to her many books, she's a staff writer for The New Yorker, and her Twitter feed is hysterical. Susan Orlean, welcome to Design Matters. I'm so thrilled to be with you. Thank you. Susan, are you still teaching yourself how to play the ukulele? I moved from ukuleles to drums. I understand that you learned how to play the Grateful Dead's Uncle John's Band, so both on the drums and the ukulele? Uh, Well, my
1: drum career had me just learning the basics of drum rolls and drum. how to hold my drumsticks properly. I was really starting at ground zero, and my teacher encouraged me to play along with songs, but I was so much a diligent student that I simply did these exercises, which I really enjoyed, but... It was simply an exercise book that I followed through. There was no music involved.
0: (laughs) Well, I'd love to see you behind the drum kit. That would be an interesting visual.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I have a couple of pictures of me playing drums, and I looked very legit. It made me really happy. I thought, I don't look like somebody who's just learning. I look pretty natural sitting there, and I thought, this is you know, this could be the cover of my album. This really
0: looks pretty good. Susan, you were born in Cleveland and have said that you are the product of a happy and relatively uneventful childhood. But I understand that your mother, Edith, won the Palm Beach Seniors Tennis Tournament when she was 80. Sounds like quite the dynamo.
1: She Wow, you've really done your research. Um, my mom was quite exceptional. She was a real athlete at a time when it wasn't that common for women of her generation to be really avid athletes. She was a really good tennis player. She played several times a week. It was inspiring to me. And she continued at the point when she was in her 80s, she was playing doubles with partners who were sometimes in their 30s and she was very competitive and it gave her a lot of pleasure and purpose that I I really admired
0: yet yeah, you've said that your father was really the author of your particular personality in what way my
1: father was the ultimate curiosity seeker he was open to learning. He was open to being surprised. He was somebody who really shunned the the sort of usual expectations. For instance, if you were if we were traveling as a family and there was a very typical tourist attraction wherever we were, my dad was not interested. He was much more interested in wandering around seeing what he came across, what he used to do when he would visit me in New York well into his 80s and 90s is he would just get on a bus. He wouldn't know what bus route it was, where the bus was going. He just felt like this was an interesting way to see the city. And it was, in retrospect, to me, the behavior of a real journalist. And he wasn't a journalist. He was a lawyer and a real estate developer. But he had that instinct, which was life happens in the margins, things that are not the celebrated, the big capital letter attractions. That's what's interesting. And he loved talking to people. He loved talking to people of every stripe. He was very curious to ask people, where were they from? What were they doing? How did they end up there? To me, that, that's the ultimate tool of journalism. And he really embodied it.
0: He must have absolutely loved your writing.
1: Well, my dad being my dad, of course, he (laughs) did not believe in spoiling us with praise. So I knew that he was really proud of me, and I knew that he loved the kind of writing I was doing, but he was from a generation that believed that you simply said, you know, good job, and that was it, and he didn't make a big fuss about what I was doing. I mean, to a degree that, of course, I yearned for more. But luckily, I knew that he really felt it. And he was tough on me in the beginning and very skeptical about whether this could work as a a profession. He was never negative. He didn't criticize my work or act as if it was trivial, I think he just looked at it very practically and thought, Is this, are you going to be able to support yourself? Is this going to sustain you? My parents were products of the depression, and they knew how much it mattered to be able to take care of yourself. And my dad wanted me to go to law school. That was his mantra. If you want to be a writer, that's fine.
0: But in the meantime, go to law school. And so you considered you, it. I know that you seriously thought about doing that.
1: He put it to me in such a way that I thought, well, I guess I better do this and and have that safety net. I begged for a year between college and when I would go to law school, but I had taken my LSATs. And in this year, I thought I will just be doing stupid jobs to pay my rent and then I'll go to law school because I really didn't have great expectations that I could get a writing job. I had absolutely no nothing to recommend me. I didn't have any clips. I didn't have any training. I had nothing I certainly had no reason to think anyone would hire me, (laughs) and really nobody had a reason to hire me.
0: But you, you seem to be quite certain, I think from a very young age, I think it was five, that you never wanted to do anything other than write. And you said it was like being a magician, taking words and making pictures with them, taking readers to places and into situations they'd never be in otherwise. So you started writing very young just for yourself.
1: I always felt that there was a truly alchemic quality to writing that fascinated me. The idea that you could read words on a page and feel, really feel, that you were somewhere else or you were inside someone's head or that you could see an exotic place, to me that was extraordinary. I, I couldn't ever and still have never gotten over the wonder of that. Of course, when you see something really powerful, it's appealing to think, I want to do that too. Even though, uh, you know, it was a time in my life where I was way too young to have any really thoroughly developed idea of what that might mean. The magical quality of writing drew me in from the very beginning. And I never fantasized about doing anything else. I just wanted to be a writer.
0: I understand that your high school encounter with Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test was transformational. You compared it to hearing jazz for the first time. Was it Wolf's writing or the story that you felt so compelling or somehow the sort of interweaving of both?
1: That's a great question. I think that it really was the writing. I mean, the story was amazing. And I think for people growing up in that era and learning about this incredible, crazy merry pranksters and this wild, wild social experiment that they were doing, of course, it was incredibly exciting. Um, I was a, Midwestern suburban girls. So there was a a certain allure of a life that I was never going to have that grew out of reading that. But what really astonished me and made me read the book over and over again was the writing. And Tom Wolfe, I mean, he really did shake up the idea of what you could do with nonfiction. There were great nonfiction writers um, before him, certainly, but his complete freedom and willingness to throw away every convention and inhabit the language in a different way was like nothing I'd ever read. And, and, you know, at that point, actually, I didn't read a lot of nonfiction. You know, I was a high school kid, and we all read fiction in English class. I read lots of magazines, but I wasn't reading the nonfiction of A.J. Liebling or Joseph Mitchell. I mean, there were lots of brilliant nonfiction writers who were writing books at that time, but... I had never read any of them. So to read a book like this that was not only in terms of form so radical, but the idea of what it was writing about was so astonishing, that combination to me was literally mind-blowing. And I, I read the book. I started reading it again immediately I carried it around with me. I'm not exactly sure why, but I carried it around with me for most of 11th and 12th grade. I just always had it with me. And I would flip through it, sometimes just reading little bits of it here and there. And of course, I love The Grateful Dead. So, I mean, there were aspects of it that also connected to things I was interested in anyway. But Part of what I also found thrilling was the idea that this was a worthy subject, that writing about this unusual band of unconventional outliers was, was a good subject. That really
0: blew my mind. You said that you wanted to be someone who wrote long stories about interesting things rather than news stories about short-lived events. Was that influenced by Tom Wolfe and and his work?
1: Absolutely. I think he and, you know, later as I began reading Joan Didion and other writers of that, that generation, I realized that I didn't have a an instinct for news. I wasn't somebody who, who was a newsbreaker. I didn't care about it. And I remember when I was in college, a lot of my friends were on the college paper, and they were amazingly driven to learn things that people didn't know yet. It was a revelation to me where I thought, I I don't really care about being first to know something. that. That isn't what excites me. What excites me more is that element of discovery, of zeroing in on something. In fact, I think that I'm as interested or maybe more interested in looking at something incredibly familiar that everybody knows and saying, well, have you ever considered it this way? Or... You think you know this, but do you really know this? And it's been my curse in a way, and blessing, I'll say, but definitely a curse in the sense that on first glance, a lot of what I write about would draw from people the reaction of, who cares, or why, why would anybody write a book about that? Why would anyone write a New Yorker story about that? I kind of love that. I, I sort of love the contrarian aspect of that, of saying, well, actually, I'm going to surprise you because you're going to discover this is actually incredibly interesting. I almost found it more enticing to take on that challenge
0: I I read a really interesting quote from Charles McGrath about your job interview at The New Yorker. Um, He says this about you. She came into my office and in the space of a 20-minute conversation had about 100 ideas for stories and about 80 of them were good. (laughs) <laughs> wow, and that's and
1: actually thrilling.
0: I, I was wondering how on earth did you have 80 good ideas? I'm still waiting to come up with one good idea to pitch to The New Yorker and I'm 60.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, you know, one of the th- great things about my, certainly back then, and to some degree, this is still true, but I was so uninhibited. It's almost like, Being willing to try out a joke without any fear of whether people will laugh or not. So I threw out a million, you know, the fact is if you sat down and just said quickly off the top of your head, tell me 10 things that you thought about today and you didn't sit there and think, well, will there be an audience for this? Will, how will I do it? What's the point of the just uninhibited? throw it out there and see if it makes any sense. And I think that when I went in for that interview, I sat down and just without any fear of embarrassing myself because I was simply too naive to understand that 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 could happen, I just spewed out all of these things that I was curious about. Um, And I do think that the lack of inhibition is really important when you come up with story ideas. I think we've all become used to the idea that you have to sell an idea to an editor, and the editor has to sell the idea to the magazine, and there has to be an audience. And, you know, there are a lot of factors that weigh on it beyond just, are you excited about writing about this?
0: Well, I think that the the real beauty and sort of magic of your work is you make these things interesting. I'm not sure they'd be quite as interesting without your perspective sort of attached and associated to them. But I'm curious because I talking about lack of inhibition, is it true that you got the job interview at The New Yorker by writing Charles McGrath about a job on The Strength of a Rumor?
1: Yes, it's actually uh, one of these stories that sounds very enchanted, because you can't believe it happened. But um, at the time, I had just moved to New York, and I was sharing an office with another writer. And we didn't really have a wall between our workspaces. So we could really hear everything that the other person said on the phone. And one day, I overheard him in a conversation that sounded from my eavesdropping nosiness, like he was talking to somebody about the New Yorker looking for new talk of the town writers. And when he got off the phone, I said to him, did I hear this? Did I eavesdrop this correctly that the New Yorker is looking for writers? And he said, yeah, that he had heard through this other friend that maybe they were looking for writers. So I just was off to the races. I gathered up my clips because, of course, in my mind, I had spent the last five years preparing to apply to The New Yorker. The New Yorker did not know this. (laughs) I believed it. I believed it was happening. So I put together my clips and I decided to treat myself to taking a taxi. This was my early days in New York and taking a cab was a splurge. I dressed up because I thought that I would walk into this bustling newsroom and (laughs) present my clips. And I guess evidently I thought that they would look at my cute outfit and say, well, we're going to hire you. I mean, I, I, The absolute innocence of this undertaking still amuses me. So I walked in and there was a tiny little uh, foyer and a receptionist sitting behind a glass window that had a little slot. My heart fell immediately. And I said to her, well, I'm here to drop my clips off for Mr. McGrath. And she barely looked at me and simply sort of batted her eyelashes and said just put them here indicating that I should slide them through this little slot like at a bank and that was it and she was done she took them and barely spoke to me and I say this laughing because she and I became good friends but she was very cold and I ended up walking home because I was so blue that i walked from midtown to my apartment on the upper west side and just felt like i've just wasted all that money on xeroxing
0: <laughs> and to say nothing of the taxi.
1: really talk <laughs> you know talk about placing this in time um and when i got home there was a call on my answering machine from charles mcgrath saying if you'd like to come in tomorrow we can talk about some of these ideas i almost died,
0: literally. Your very first piece in The New Yorker was titled Folding. It ran in the May 25th, 1987 issue of The New Yorker. And it was, believe it or not, listeners, from one of those 80 original ideas that you presented to Mr. McGrath. It was about clothing folders working at the Fifth Avenue Benetton store. And I read that you stated that while you had worked with good editors before, you'd never been in a situation where the quality of the work was all that mattered. How did that impact the kind of stories that you were pitching and writing in those early years at The New Yorker?
1: There is nothing that gives you more confidence than to have someone who you respect tell you that your ideas are good. Not an individual specific idea, but that your way of looking at the world has merit. You know, the, the Benetton stores had as their kind of aesthetic vibe, these stacks of sweaters folded perfectly and stacked up. So you they didn't even look like sweaters. It just looked like this array of color. And... I don't know why. I guess I was in a Benetton store and I saw one of the employees doing a gorgeous job folding a sweater. And I thought, wow, God, I I mean, I don't know how to fold a sweater like that. Do they hire people who already know how to fold sweaters really well? Or do they train them? And if they train them, how do you train someone to fold a sweater like that? And you know, you could say, "Well, this is a like who cares?" But to me, the texture of everyday life matters. How does life turn out to be the way it turns out? And in this case, it actually turned out to be incredibly funny, and talking to these young people who worked at Benetton and how they all became obsessed with folding and Benetton trained them to fold and They would go home and fold all their clothes and fold their parents' clothes. And I think what was great for me with The New Yorker was having them say not that, oh, this is funny and kind of silly and it will be a a nice balance to our otherwise serious, important work, but that it was legitimately important. It doesn't have global impact but it has real impact. It's about the way life presents itself. It was really intoxicating to have that sense of what made a story validated.
0: I think that what makes your stories and your writing so interesting is the notion that until you bring it to somebody's attention, they don't even necessarily realize that they've been realizing these things all along you know I I've been shopping for sweaters my entire life it's part of the uniform that I wear I'm wearing one now to this day Susan I can't go into a store and look at a sweater and pick it up out of a pile and not feel guilty when I return it because I've not been able to fold it in as nice a way and, well, and it's like my it, yeah. whole life. And then I read this article that from 1987, I'm like, w- why didn't I read this then?
1: <laughs> That's so, so funny. Much. And, then, and, you know, this, it, it, it was also about mastery. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I became very interested in mastery and how, how important it is for everybody, no matter where they fall in the giant range of socioeconomic and and professional strata to feel that they have mastered something. And, I mean, I ended up writing a lot of stories that sprang out of that same curiosity. What, What does it feel like to yearn to master something? What do you get from it? Why do we do it? And, you know, certainly I came to feel that it, it it really is an essential piece of contentment. And I came to feel that those stories were really important to tell because they got at this very essential piece of
0: human nature. Your third book, The Orchid Thief, grew out of an article for The New Yorker. The thief of the title is John LaRoche. You describe him as skinny as a stick, pale-eyed, slouch-shouldered, and sharply handsome, in spite of the fact that he is missing all of his front teeth. And I understand that you first came upon a short article about him in a local Florida newspaper. And I was wondering how you found an article in a local newspaper, a small local newspaper, was that a way you looked and researched story ideas?
1: I'll begin by saying yes. There are times when I'm casting about trying to jog my brain and think of a new story idea. And I used to go in Back in the olden days when there were magazine stores, I would go to. There was a a huge magazine store right on 42nd Street near the New Yorker called Hodelings. And they had every weird specialty magazine and newspapers from all over the world. And I would just kind of rifle through them, hoping that something would just pop out. In the case of The Orchid Thief, though, it was really accidental. I. Had just finished a New Yorker piece, I don't remember which one, and I had gone on a little vacation to Mexico, I believe. And the flight back, someone had left a Miami Herald in the seat pocket. I immediately saw this headline Local nurserymen and three Seminoles arrested in swamp with rare orchids. And, you know, talk about clickbait. I mean, <laughs> it was like, how, how many words can you put in one headline to make a person like me go, what? You know, it was just like everything, everything about it. And it was a short piece that just it gave very little information. It just said this John LaRoche had been arrested in the Fakaachi Strand, and he had a crew of three seminal men with him, and they had five pillowcases filled with orchids and that there would be a hearing coming up. And literally the minute I landed, I mean, I tore the story out of the paper. I landed the next day I went into work and went right into my editor and said, I have no idea what this is about. And that's why I want to go write about it because I cannot unpack this story at all. I can't make heads or tails of it. I can't figure it out. And I knew nothing about orchids. I didn't know that they grew wild in the U.S. I didn't know why this particular guy was with a crew of Seminoles. I just found it mysterious in a way that was irresistible. I went down that same week, I believe, I went down to the initial hearing. You know, it was off to the races at that point because LaRoche instantly struck me as a fascinating character. The little tiny bits that I was able to learn quickly all intrigued me. I wrote this first as a story for The New Yorker that was a pretty long piece. But when I was most of the way done, I I felt like I really needed to keep going, that the story was had so many layers, and the layers were so complex, and, you know, these aren't easy stories to write. Um, You know, once Tina Brown said to me, what you do is a high-wire act. These stories, if they're not executed properly, would be a disaster. And I understood what she meant, which was these are buoyed up by the passion that I feel for them and the, the connections that I draw from them. Because otherwise, on the face of it, nobody got killed. This guy, you know, got fined for stealing some orchids. It's, it's not the stuff of drama. And yet, to me, it, it, it was so compelling but it makes it a little scarier to write because the, the, burden, the burden is so much on the writing.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, in the article and the book, you talk quite a lot about the passion John has, and you just talked about, you know, this passion. And you write about how you envy this passion and this organizing principle for life. Ultimately, do you think that you are writing about Passion and devotion, as opposed to just the sort of pursuit of orchids? A hundred percent.
1: I would never set out to write a book just about orchids, but I'm glad that the subject of this book happened to be in and of itself interesting. But ultimately, I think the book works as an emotional exploration. It isn't a dramatic crime. It's a crime that makes sense if you begin thinking about this compulsion and obsession and in its more moderate form, passion for the imperfectible, namely to collect every orchid in the world or to possess in some permanent way a living thing, which is by definition impossible that and and I think that it became clear to me as I was writing this that the power of it was this emotional exploration that grew from this very eccentric very odd subsect of the world of passion and I I feel like the discovery that I collect stories, and that I was going to the extremes, the exact same extremes, that John LaRoche was going to, I had a moment at the that I wrote about at the end of the book of being very exasperated because he kept promising to take me into the swamp and show me the ghost orchid and kept canceling on me, and I was really fed up, and finally... I forced the issue and he took me in and we got lost and he had claimed he knew his way around and he didn't and we were lost. And, you know, I was just looking at him thinking, what kind of idiot goes hiking in this godforsaken place for an orchid (laughs) when you could go to Home Depot and buy one? (laughs) You know, just this feeling of like, what is the point of doing this and going through such hardship
0: for this stupid flower which you don't even end up seeing never never (laughs) i had to google it to see what it looked like never
1: never so looking at him and being so puzzled like what on earth what would drive you to do this ridiculous tromp through the swamp you know and and pausing for a minute and thinking okay there are two of us here
0: (laughs) Both on a quest. Both on a quest. You appear throughout the book and tell the story in a first-person voice. You've said that you hate the pretend objectivity of some journalism, that omniscient third-person voice. When you're investigating a story, do you have to keep notes on what you are doing and thinking and feeling in the same way as what you're observing in your subject? One of the things I'm struck by in your writing is the level of detail you include about essentially everything. You know, even somebody <laughs> tapping on the desk. I just read your your new piece that Amazon Original Stories launched, and, and I'll talk to you a little bit about that at the end of the interview. But I was so struck by the level of detail that you capture about being hypnotized. <laughs> so you were hypnotized, and yet you were able to talk so succinctly and so detailed about, you know, the doctor and his fingers and his lumpy chair. And I was struck by it. and And it's in all of your work. Thank
1: you. I I, I feel a, a few things. First of all, I'm blessed with a good memory, although I always worry that, that that's just, you know, something that can be failable. And I take notes in a pretty clunky way with my pad and my pen. But I also, and this will sound a little touchy-feely, but I care more about being in the experience, and I feel like your memory of experiences rely very much by how how focused you are in them. You know, I often say to people, think about when you took a trip and you had an incredible experience, and you you're able to talk about it very fully. People... Remember details when they're very engaged in an experience, and for me, that that's really essential. And I don't like being distracted by the mechanical devices and worrying whether my tape is working. And um, I'm noting a lot of those, the texture of the experience. And that stays with me. And it's easy for me to conjure that when I sit down to write.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. You recently sold your house in the Hudson Valley and are now living in LA full-time. Back in 2011, when you first moved to California part-time, your son had an assignment that required you to take him to the Studio City branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. This excursion not only reignited your childhood passion for libraries, which you really didn't talk about, and I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about that, it inspired you to write your ninth book titled The Library Book. Yet at the time, I read that you had decided to give up writing books. Why?
1: My previous book had taken me so long. I felt so worn out. I remember th- thinking, you know, I can just write magazine stories. And this is one thing I want to make clear. It's not that I thought I don't want to be a writer anymore. I just thought, you know, taking on a book project is such a commitment. It's a marriage. It, it lasts forever. It's There's so much stress. It's very much alone. And I thought, and I remember having coffee with a friend who said, you don't need to write any more books. You know, you've already written a bunch of books. You don't have to write any more books. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a relief. Well, I guess I'm not going to write any more books. And I felt like, oh, my God, life is so easy now if I'm just doing magazine pieces. But, of course, I heard about this idea, and I thought, whoa, this is, like, really kind of a great story. And I thought to myself, I can do this really quickly, like a year. (laughs)
0: Famous last words. (laughs) It took you five years, right? Three years of research and two years of writing.
1: Yes. I mean, no book. Maybe some books are quick and easy. I don't know. I don't think it's inherent in the form.
0: When you first heard the story about the Central Library in Los Angeles, did it bring back early memories of your own library experiences, or were you really just transfixed by this epic, epic fire that occurred in 1986?
1: It really was a combination of the two. I I think that when I took my son to the library, I had a very profound reconnection with the memories of going to the library with my mother. It threw me. It surprised me. Um, I hadn't thought about it in years. And it's not that there was something so unusual about our trips, but the the emotion that welled up was so profound. It It really caught me by surprise. It made me want to understand why a visit to a library had so much impact. It was soon after that when I f- found out about the fire and it was completely accidental. I thought, oh my God, this is incredible. I had no idea that there was this huge fire and that the library was closed for seven years. This is this is amazing. And so those two impulses wedded very nicely. Um, You know, I got a narrative for this other exploration, which was why do libraries mean so much? Why do they bring out in us such
0: tender feelings? I found a quote that I loved that I felt really represented that early passion that you had for going to the library when you were a little girl. And you've written how you love to spin around with your eyes closed and then stop and see what strange and wonderful and unimaginable things your eye gaze landed on. What kinds of things were you attracted to reading at that age?
1: I... Loved reading about animals. That was probably my great passion. I read every iteration of my friend Flicka that was ever published. Books about dogs, books about horses. You know, I'm talking about books to read, not just picture books. Oh, of course. And yeah. and then um, over time, I I sort of evolved as a teenager into reading. Victoria Holt, you know, all of these kind of romance, not, they're not quite at the level of what we think of as romance novels now, because they're there was, they were very chaste and very G-rated. And I loved those. Absolutely love them.
0: Why did you title the book, The Library Book, and not just The Library?
1: Ah, oh, that's a good question. You know, um, I, I guess I liked the very meta quality of calling a book a book. And, oh, I get um, it.
0: Oh, I get it. Okay,
1: that's wonderful. You know, it. You know, there was something sort of playful about the design, making it look like a library book, and just reiterating that Russian doll quality.
0: Right. Oh, that's wonderful. So the centerpiece of the book is this catastrophic fire the Central Library suffered in 1986, and the fire exhausted most of the city's fire departments. It consumed 3 million gallons of water, was finally extinguished after burning for 7 hours and 38 minutes, when it was over, more than 400,000 books were burned. The cause of the fire remains unknown even to this day, but arson was initially suspected, and Arson is one of the hardest things to investigate. I learned all of this from your book. <laughs> right. You, you bring the, to life the story of the suspected arsonist, a complex man named Harry Peake, who was initially interrogated and arrested and then released. And then the city of Los Angeles filed a civil suit against him. He filed a civil suit in return. And then Harry Peake died of AIDS. The case of arson in the Central Library fire is technically unsolved. What do you think? Do you think it was arson? Do you think it was an accident?
1: I change my mind on this regularly, and and I'm not being coy. I argue with myself. Um, Harry Peake had no reason to start the fire, and yet he loved attention. He never provided a, a consistent alibi, and at the same time, he knew of... He knew facts about the fire that would have been very hard to know had he not been there. On the other hand, in the most extreme instance of this, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that it's very difficult to investigate. It's easy to start a fire. Someone said to me the other day, well, he must have had some sophisticated fire-starting device. And I said, really? I Think you could start a fire with a match?
0: With with all that in paper
1: in in a, in a <laughs> yeah, library right. filled with books and paper, dried
0: out paper. You take
1: one match, light one thing on fire, and just give it a little time. Listen, there have been huge, huge forest fires in California that were started with one cigarette. In the case of a library, this huge building that had that was packed with flammable material, it seems to me that there is still the possibility that this was an accidental fire that put aside Harry Peake knowing too much stuff about the library that he shouldn't have known. I think perfectly reasonable to imagine that this was an accident in a building that had all sorts of fire code violations that was overly full. So...
0: I don't have an answer. You bring to life the story of Harry Peake in such an interesting way. And your portrayal of the eccentric allows us to marvel at what seems to be ordinary but realize isn't, you know, and going all the way back to folding and the sort of intricacy and detail and beauty and magic of something so quotidian, or invisible even. But you also give us these open-ended stories about people. What's so interesting about so many of your characters is that you don't provide a conclusive ending. You and John LaRoche don't ever find the ghost orchid you are hunting for. Harry Peake wasn't convicted, and we'll never know for sure how the fire was started. And you seem undeterred by lack of closure, and your writing somehow feels better for it. Like, I don't know if it would be quite as interesting, even in your most recent um, story, your essay for Amazon. It feels to me like not knowing if you ever sort of were able to be hypnotized again. And I, want to be, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. <laughs> um, it seems like that not knowing is part of the beauty of, of what you do.
1: When I started the library book, I thought Harry Peake was alive, and my publisher thought I would solve the crime. And I, of course, encouraged my publisher to think I was going to solve the crime, because that's a good way to sell a book. When I discovered that Harry Peake was not alive, and that the chance of really having a concrete resolution was unlikely, there was a point where my husband said to me, doesn't that kind of ruin the book? And I, (laughs) I don't know whether this is my eternal optimism or whether I'm a fool or what, but I just said, oh no, I think it, I think it makes it better. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure that it makes it better as much as I felt very comfortable with it not being resolved. Because, I don't know, that life is not usually resolved. I mean, the thing with the ghost orchid, I was a little worried to see it because I didn't think it could possibly live up to what had been years of me pursuing it. I mean, how could it live up to it? It it was in the end, just a flower, and um, there are lots of pretty flowers in the world. So not seeing it actually kept it in this realm of mystery and desirability and unattainability that would have been made very ordinary by seeing it. I'm not daunted by there not being an answer, and I, I feel like readers accept that,
0: accept the ambiguity. I think that's really what, well, it's one of the many things that, that makes your work so unique and so special. I'm, I'm one of these people that always likes to know the answer to everything before I experience it. Like, what is this going to be like? Let's Wikipedia the movie plot so I know that when somebody's going to die or I'm not Ah. going to be surprised, or I'm not going to be sad, because I'll be prepared for that. But I I do have to say that I think going through your work in anticipation of our interview has really allowed me to see the the beauty in the process in a way that I hadn't quite been able to to muster before for my own well-being.
1: Well, Well, and I do think you've just expressed it perfectly, which is in every instance, it is about the process. It's about learning about something. It's not about solving it. And to me, writing is about teaching people about something I've learned about. So there's much less of a demand for there to be an endpoint.
0: Susan, the last thing that I want to talk to you about is your Twitter feed. And, and one series of posts in particular, which you're probably anticipating my being curious about, one evening a few months ago, you maybe had a little bit too much to drink while meeting a, a newborn cult. And while the rest of your family was watching a movie in your living room, you went to bed and started tweeting. Your thread began with a simple but candid one word, which was DRUNK. And ended with one that said, I am goy F to sleep. My husband has asked me 500 rhymes if I'm all right. That means it's go to sleep (laughs) o'clock. During the thread, you criticized your cat for not wanting to cuddle and tweeted this about seeing the birth of the cult. Okay, a newborn cult rocks it totally, and he thought my hand was his mom. It was not. He has tasted life's infinite tragedy. As I mentioned earlier, I am inebriated. So the response from the media was immediate. Uh, Entertainment Weekly stated, you stole our hearts with drunken tweet storm. Vogue declared it the pandemic comic relief we needed right now. Somebody compared it to Ina Garten's Instagram post with the giant martini glass. The comedian Craig Kakowski even performed a dramatic reading of the thread. I didn't know if you knew that. Were you surprised by the reaction? And how do you feel about all of this sort of in retrospect?
1: You know, this was one of the strangest, funniest, most... Unexpected and Unexpectable Experiences of My life Um, I was Really drunk (laughs) And I was In bed With my Phone next To me Which is Never a Good idea And began And actually Someone uh, I'm very Anal about Typos I I just Hate having Typos (laughs) And misspelling So Just writing this as I did, it was in the dark and I was not correcting my typos and I made lots and lots of mistakes because I was sort of doing it blind. And then I fell asleep. So, I mean, there was a point where my husband came in and said that someone had gotten in touch with him and asked if my Twitter feed had been hacked. (laughs) And I was, for some reason, I was really irate. I thought, well, that's outrageous. No, my Twitter feed hasn't been hacked. And then I sort of shooed him away and said, Leave me alone. You know, I'm just I'm drunk and I want to be by myself in in bed. And the only thing that I was embarrassed about was wondering if my neighbors, who were the owners of this little foal, if they could tell how drunk I was. And I mean it hit me like a sledgehammer. I was smashed it came over me very quickly. It was very hot out and we were sitting out in the sun drinking and they kept pouring more and more and more wine. And when I stood up, I almost fell over and I thought, oh geez, this is embarrassing. But uh, let's just assume they didn't notice. So I went to sleep blissfully ignorant. When I opened Twitter, which I do early on, I, I really almost fainted. And then I had a bunch of, you know, requests from different publications, from a newspaper in Australia, from this, from that. And I thought, what is going on? And then somebody said to me, were you performing? And I said, oh my God, I wish I could perform that well. I mean, No. I'm not performing. I mean, I wouldn't, I could never have done a drunk tweet as well as I
0: did it drunk. I think I mean, that's why people enjoyed I... it. People knew you were drunk. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I. it was funny because I thought also, how cynical. I would never do something like that. And, and this is somewhat embarrassing, though they were very good natured about it. My neighbors, the ones who had had us over for, drinks, emailed and said, sounds like you had a fun night. And these are people I would never have thought would have been on Twitter. Because my first thought was, well, at least they won't know that I was so drunk, and they'll never see the Twitter feed, because they're not, they're not the kind of people who are on Twitter. And immediately in the morning, it was like, Sounds like you sure had fun. You want to come over again tonight for more drinks? And I thought, oh, my God. And then our next door neighbors, who we had never met because they just bought the house, somehow, um, I guess they, ins- they messaged me on Twitter saying, um, hi, we live next door. Would love to meet. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God. I mean that it was it was actually really funny. I will say that I never felt embarrassed. I I think I felt like look, we're all at the end of our ropes. Everybody's drinking too much. I didn't say anything I'm embarrassed of having said. I mean, it was mostly me ranting about my cat and you know, this is one of the weird things about the modern world. I mean, broadcasting, being drunk, I guess, is the first piece of this. But the way something like that spreads is so astonishing and so odd. And, you know, I had one little flicker of thinking, oh, my God, I'm a serious writer. And are people going to now think I'm a flake? But this has happened in my career Multiple times, like agreeing to let The Orchid Thief be made into adaptation, I had a moment of thinking, no, people are going to think I'm. it's going to ruin my career and I can't let them do this to my book. And then I had another moment of thinking, well, what the hell? And I, I guess that feeling that it's all part of the package. It, it sort of revealed me in a way that I I'm not, I don't reveal myself so much really, but it was also very authentic. <laughs> so I can't, I can't say I regret it. I find it still so much of the moment that I just laugh when I think about, you know, the doldrums of summer and the pandemic and, you know, everything that we've all gone through and, and, drinking at four in the afternoon and you know the whole thing was just
0: so much uh, the moment in time i think it was the perfect thing to help us through that moment in time i i watched it live as it was unfurling and was just belly laughing that's how much i enjoyed it so thank you for that and and susan thank you so much so so much for joining me today thank you for bringing so much beautiful work into the world and Thank you for having this conversation with me today on Design Matters.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure in every way. You can find out more about Susan Orlean's books and articles on her website, SusanOrlean.com. She also has a brand new story. It is titled You Are Ready for Takeoff, and it is part of Amazon's original story series that also features work by Cheryl Strayed, Roxane Gay, and Emma Donahue, all of whom have been on Sign Matters. You Are Ready for Takeoff is an hysterical and educational True story about Susan's foray into hypnosis. I highly recommend it. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.